Hey, I'm Amory Robertson. I'm your host for Read Write Geek, a podcast for writers, readers, and makers of all kinds. Welcome aboard. Morning arrives again with window ringing the rising chimes. I climb out of my hammock and throw some water on my face at my wash basin. My headset starts pulsating, and I pull it on as I sort out my clothing for the day. Faith, are you there? Polly is roaring. I'm here, I'm here. What's up? I say. Oh, there you are. Just a minute. I wait patiently while Polly does ten other things and continue to go about getting myself dressed. When he comes back on, it's only to hand me off to Graham. At least Graham doesn't yell. Hi, I say. We need to get tech to put a rush on your headset, I think. To my surprise, he chuckles a little. Polly clearly doesn't enjoy these little interludes without his. He's gesturing at me to hurry up. Now I smile a little, envisioning the scene. I had no idea I could be made to see humor in anything anymore after yesterday. I'm not sure whether to be relieved or disgusted at myself. Okay, Polly, okay, I'm getting on with it, Graham says over his shoulder before he resumes talking to me. I checked in on Carloa last night and again this morning. There's no change in her condition. She's in deep stasis, but her vital signs are stable and she's not deteriorating, so that's a positive. Yes, so far so good. I spoke to the pod leaders that have extractions in their pods, so they're aware of the situation and know what to tell their people about what happened. Also good. So what should I tell the twins? I'm going to come by to speak to them personally, but in the meantime, I'm sure you'll know what to say if they have concerns. You apparently have a talent for that. My face heats up at the praise, but I immediately quash the warm rush of pleasure. All right, we'll be seeing you for breakfast then? Yes, see you shortly. Graham's gentle tones are replaced by Polly's ear-splitting roar. See you later, he shouts, and the connection closes. I make my way to the common room and find a much more normal-looking scene than the one that greeted me yesterday. The Ionians are chatting amiably and including the two other adult Bartizellians, an unrelated man and woman in their late 20s. The twins are seated together, and although they both look tired, Holly is at least no longer weeping and responds occasionally to Hen's entreaties to eat something. Another positive, no one is resisting the food. Despite yesterday's trauma, Hen appears to have already plowed through several of Wenda's excellent breakfast muffins. I'm sitting down with my plate and a steaming mug of coffee when Graham arrives via scooter. Hen and Holly perk up considerably when he comes through the door, and I remember that he is essentially the person who rescued them from certain doom. He greets everyone with a wave and a smile. Wenda brings him a mug, and they talk for a few moments before he turns his attention to the twins. Holly and Hen hang on his every word and beam at him, responding to his inquiries with a degree of animation I haven't seen from them before. After a few minutes, he gestures toward the door. They respond enthusiastically. All three of them stand, and Graham whispers to them both, looking toward me. The twins turn to face me. Faith, do we have any tasks to complete this morning? asks Hen. Governor Thorne would like us to spend some time with him. You two only have school orientation this afternoon, I tell them, so it sounds like you have plenty of time. They shout, thank you, in unison and run to Graham, who is standing at the door. We'll be back soon, he adds. I lift my coffee to him in salute, and he smiles at me warmly. It seems that he lets his gaze linger on me a little longer than absolutely necessary as the twins dart out the door ahead of him. After breakfast, everyone scatters to take care of their work assignments for the day. Relishing the quiet, I take an extra cup of coffee back to my quarters and dive into my weekly administrative pod management duties, making sure everyone's schedule is set and our chores are divided up, food stores and water units are planned and ordered, and various pod member requests are dealt with. Windows recommending an additional toaster, Darrow's requesting more medical supplies, as well as basic first aid kits for all the new pod members. 
The twins also need hollow tablets for their lessons, and all the new arrivals need headsets. It's a lot of detail work, filling out the appropriate forms and sending the requests in the right formats to the right places, but the easy routine of it makes for a pleasant break from the intensity of the last couple of days. The last issue on my list of tasks is personal storage. Our living and sleeping space here is quite compact. That means very little in the way of individual possessions can actually be kept in our quarters, not much outside a few changes of clothing and a handful of small objects. But we aren't anti-personal property, so everyone on Iona gets their own storage space, designed to accommodate whatever their needs might be. Each pod has a storage worn located nearby. Inside is a veritable maze of options, ranging from small cubbies and lockers to room-sized areas used by our machinists and artisans. My new Bartizellian podmates' possessions were all sent to our warren when they were assigned to our pod. I'll need to see how much they brought to make an appropriate assignment for each person. I push my chair back from my desk and stand up, stretching my back and arms. I'm looking forward to doing something besides sitting for the next hour or so. I pop on my headset, grab my credentials, then pass through the common room to pick out one of our holo tablets and some coffee to take along. Then I set out for the short walk to our storage warren out on the western edge of residential. The walk is pleasant as walks go on Iona. Really, the best walking conditions are in the early evening after the planet's insistent wind has died down. At this hour, I still have to deal with wind and sand, but the thing that catches my attention is the sky. The dense beige clouds that usually surround our world have thinned out this morning, and I can almost convince myself I can see patches of blue behind them. Iona's atmosphere isn't blue, of course. A completely clear sky here would be pinkish tan if we ever saw one. I'm letting my nostalgia for homeworld fill in the gaps. It feels like that happens more and more now. Walking at a comfortable pace for ten minutes would bring me to our storage warren, but stopping to chat with the other Ionians who are out and about takes my transit time up to half an hour. When I arrive, there are two auto flats floating in the warren's courtyard. Darrow's medical goods and Wenda's toaster have already arrived from General Supply. I punch in the coordinates for our pod's common room, and the flats move away, retracing the path I took to get here. I watch them float away, then use my credentials to pop open the main door and enter the warren. Light 60%, I say as I walk in, and the lighting comes on and adjusts as requested. The first part of the warren is a small receiving room, bisected by a straight, wide hallway lined with small cubbies, most often assigned to our youngest podmates, along with personal lockers that are roughly the size of a decent walk-in closet back on home world. At the far end of this hallway is our share, a large open space designed to hold things potentially important to the pod as a whole. Furniture, like hammocks, chairs, and desks. Emergency supplies like generators and water purifiers and temporary rations. Equipment and materials for small repairs to plumbing, windows, and walls. From this room, five more hallways branch off in a fan pattern. While some of these are also lined with cubbies and lockers, others feature doors that open into much larger spaces positioned between the spokes. These bigger rooms are preferred by our mechanical geniuses, builders, and artisans, and have high ceilings and deep, wide bays. I find the Bartizellian's belongings stacked neatly in the center of our share. The largest bag is teal blue and decorated with fat white flowers. The tag on it reads Holly Fortin. It's full of something soft and squishy, bulky but lightweight like pillows or stuffed animals. There's also a box with her name on it. By contrast, Hin has brought only a single military-style backpack. The two will be able to share a locker with these. I enter the new assignment into our schematic on the holopad, then load their belongings onto a mini-flat and punch in the locker number. The mini floats off toward the twins' new locker. Once there, the match between our schematic and the information I encoded into the mini-flat's controls will open the locker's door. The mini will deposit its cargo inside and then return. The door will shut once its sensors determine that the mini has moved away. 
a backpack, a heavy bag, two boxes of books on military history, and a hefty box of electronic scraps are labeled with our new pod member Mabry's name, so I assign her one of the mid-sized rooms on the Warren's interior. Quimby, the last new member of our pod, came with only a kit bag, so I mark out one of the cubbies for him. The process for each is the same. Enter the assignment on our schematic, load the mini, punch in the coordinates, and send the goods on their way. That leaves one more backpack, conspicuously black and weighty, sitting in the middle of the room. I know the name tag will read Carloa Ardival. For a moment, I consider going through the pack to see if anything in it might be dangerous. But even with the bag's owner unconscious and lying in clinical with a reawakening date possibly as far out into the future as never, it strikes me as an unsavory invasion of privacy. Even if it does contain something dangerous, there's a good chance I might not recognize it as such. I decide I'll leave it for now, and perhaps ask Graham to examine its contents later for safety's sake. As I watch the last flat float down the hall, something pushes at my memory. There's something else I've been meaning to do here, but I can't quite pull whatever it is into my consciousness. I shrug and say aloud to no one in particular, I guess I'll remember it later. At that moment, my headset goes off, and Polly shatters the silence in my head. Faith, are you there? We've got maintenance incoming. Six minutes! I shake my head with a smile. Polly and his loud, crashing urgency. He's like a brother to me, elder or not, my pod or not. I drop my mic to my mouth and say, Keep your wig on, old man. I'll be right there. Chapter 3 It's now three weeks since the Bartizellians arrived. Despite the initial rocky start, things have smoothed out and we've found our rhythm again. The transferees are getting the hang of their work teams or their schooling, and everyone seems content with their assigned pods. Truthfully, the program we use for placement has never steered us wrong. People bond easily with their podmates, and transfers only happen when individuals want to be with family members or romantic dalliances turn serious. In my pod, the new Bartizellian residents are breaking out of their shells at an amazing speed. The twins are doing well in school, and both Holly and Hen are adjusting nicely. I'm sure Graham is a substantial part of this. He visits often, spends time with them, takes them on outings, listens to their concerns. He's also on call for the rest of the transferred population, and he frequently drops in on other pods and work sites to check on his former planet mates. He apparently thinks of this as a delightful responsibility. He even visits Carloa regularly, although her condition has not changed and it's unclear whether she is aware of his presence. I wonder if perhaps I misunderstood what it meant to be governor of Bartizel. At any rate, I feel good about the way things are going, and Graham is a substantial part of my personal optimism as well. He comes by most evenings after dinner, and we walk together, along the ridge, up the dunes, through the scrub, anywhere, really, and we talk about everything. We talk about how things were done on Bartizel and how they could be done better on Iona, or funny things our podmates are doing. We talk about the jobs we've had and the people we've encountered, but especially we talk about home world. When he describes the mountain laurel where he grew up, I smell the sweet, heady fragrance. When I tell him about the silky white sand on the beaches of my childhood, I can feel it between my toes. It is rare and delicious and a little bit painful to have someone who can understand how vastly different it is to be on home world. On this walk, we wander out along the dunes to the edge of the landing pads and stop to take in the stars. Which one is home world? I ask, although I already know. He smiles and points into the sky at a small blue dot amid a million other small blue dots and says, that one. And we stand there together quietly, looking up at it, lost in our thoughts and our longings. Would you ever go back? He asks suddenly. There is something else behind his question, but I cannot, or perhaps refuse, to read it. Even for that, I answer him honestly. Part of me wants to see it again, because there are things I miss about it. But I had some bad experiences there, and I'm not sure I could go back. 
after eight years, I may not be remembering it accurately anyway. It's probably not the same at all. Ah, uh, not being the same might be a good thing. He's right. That could be the key to everything, not being the same. Well, what about you? I ask. Well, I could be tempted. I'll leave it at that. By what? The right situation, the right person, that sort of thing. Ah, uh, was there ever? Ever what? A right situation, person. Oh, he laughs softly and pauses before he answers, looking up at the stars instead of at me. I thought there was, he finally says, but no, not really. You? I hesitate. I thought there was, but no, not really. The silence that descends now is warm and unifying, like a blanket we are both wearing to protect ourselves. We understand without discussion that this is as far as we will go tonight, but also that this is a start. We stand together quietly for a few minutes more, wrapped in the comfortable silence, until he says, Let's head back to residential. We make our way back down the path, as we've done many times before. But this evening he reaches for my hand and I reach for his, and we walk hand in hand until we are one step away from the lights at the edge of residential. We say goodnight, and he squeezes my hand gently before he lets it slip from his grasp, and we go our separate ways to our own pods. When I get to my quarters, I find another drawing on my pillow from my littlest podmate, this time of a stick girl and a stick boy standing close together under the moons and stars, smiles on their faces. Like magic, I feel the crayon smile transfer itself to my face, and before I turn out the lights, I take one more long look out my window at the vast expanse of stars above the northern ridge, punctuated by Iona's hopeful little crescent moons, and I marvel at this planet's strange beauty and optimism. I hear the morning chimes ringing after a night's sleep that was peaceful, restful, and painted with pastel dreams. I climb out of my hammock with a stretch and a smile. It's my rest day today, which means Polly will be yelling at someone else through his headset. And I have some fun planned, a picnic with Fanny, whom I've seen far too little of recently, and then some time to myself to read or explore or more likely creep off into the scrub to work on my project. We've had some substantial maintenance jobs come through in the past week, and I've been able to collect an impressive and useful cache of parts and materials. My project is back on track, maybe even a little ahead of schedule. Most of my podmates have finished breakfast and departed for their work assignments before I step into the common room. Only Hen and Holly are still in the kitchen, taking their turn at cleaning up before they leave for school. Hen sees me wander in, though, and within seconds presents me with a mug of fresh coffee. It's good, he assures me. Wenda taught us how to make it. She's showing us how to make her special muffins tomorrow. I'm going to take over as pod chef. He's lying. I'm going to be pod chef, Holly chimes in. But Wenda really did teach us how to make the coffee right, and we made an extra pot for you to have during your rest day. I hug them both in thanks. They hug me in return and then laugh and snort and poke each other as they gather their tools and lunch bags and tumble out the door, shouting goodbyes and well wishes as they go. It's hard to believe they haven't always been members of our pod. The last month has transformed them in the best possible ways. And whether it's just the influx of so many new people or a testament to the positivity of the Bartizellians themselves, Iona has an undeniable new energy about it. It's as though our planet has been reborn. This idea resurfaces when I meet Fanny later. Our picnic takes place inside a brand new clear-walled domed room her pod has built on top of an outcropping of rock at the edge of the residential space. As we get settled in with our old-fashioned blankets and containers of food spread out in front of us, we can't help but be grateful for the space's added bonuses of soft, comfortable pillow seating and a lovely outdoor view that we're able to enjoy without having to deal with Iona's infamous blowing sand. 
The motto for a typical Ionian picnic is that our planet literally puts the sand in sandwich. Let me guess, a Bartizellian thought of this, I say, adjusting my pile of pillows into a kind of chase lounge. It's so fanciful and optimistic. Oh, it was definitely a Bartizellian idea, Fanny confirms, tucking a few extra pillows behind her back and breaking out her ever-present flask. They're calling it the Star Parlor. <laughs> they said they wanted to be able to stargaze at night without getting bug bit, but I suspect ulterior motives. I can't believe Polly authorized it. It's totally impractical, I say. Oh, he was completely against it until Graham talked him into it, Fanny says. That man could charm the pants off a statue. I laugh, and Fanny throws me an expectant look. Well? What? I say. She scowls at me, takes a drink, and hands me the flask. I gave him up for you, she says in mocking indignation. The least you could do is provide me with a detailed description of the goods. I'm puzzled at first, but then it hits me. Do, do you mean Graham? I ask. Fanny rolls her eyes and huffs. Of course I mean Graham. Everyone on Iona knows you two are a thing, and neither of you will say a damn word about it. It's driving us all nuts. I'm a bit stunned and don't quite know what to say. But we just... We aren't... I, we haven't... Don't tell me you aren't. You've both transformed from the most reserved people in the universe to these cheery little vessels of happiness and light. Only two things can cause that kind of transformation, either lots of money or lots of sex. I sputter helplessly. I mean, we're a... Uh, it... I... Fanny shakes her head and stares at me. I can't believe you two. You really aren't, are you? Why the hell not? He's hot, you're hot, you're both available and of age, you eye each other like dogs staring at ice cream, what's wrong with you? Even though Fanny means it as good-natured ribbing, it's making me ache in a way I can't describe. I feel something akin to panic building up in my chest, and I finally blurt out, We have to be careful. He's from Homeworld. I can't go through that again. Fanny stares at me open-mouthed. She takes in my expression and her demeanor changes. Honey, she says, reaching out and placing her hand over mine. I'm so sorry. I get it now. But please know I want this for you so badly. We all do. You deserve to be happy. I'm, I'm happy, I croak, tears welling up in my eyes. I was already happy. Fanny squeezes my hand gently. No, you weren't. You haven't been happy in years. You've been safe. That's something else altogether. She's right, and I know it. I take a long drink from her flask, letting the bitter liquid burn its way down my throat into my stomach. Then I take another swallow before passing the flask back to her. We sit in silence for a little while, nibbling on our picnic lunch, watching Iona go about its daily business below us. We're going slow. I finally say. We both just need to go slow. I get it, Fanny says and takes a drink herself. But please, try to get around to fucking before I die of old age. That story I want read aloud. After Fanny and I leave the star parlor, I decide to check in on Carloa. We didn't get off to a good start, and I'm not sure my presence is something that will benefit her if she can even detect it. But still, she is my pod sister and a planet mate, and I do want to know how she's doing. Macha meets me at clinical. There's no change, which is both negative and positive. The one thing that has changed is her appearance. She's now completely blue from head to toe. Hair, skin, nails, everything. Even the whites of her eyes have turned blue. I've been learning everything I can about this drug and its effect. 
Matcha tells me as we walk toward the intensive care unit. The coloration is meant to work as a gauge of effectiveness. This level of intensity should indicate full suspended animation. That's good. It means there should be no deterioration while she's in stasis, at least in the short term. But there's no information on what happens long term. There's some chance that the drug might just wear off, but we don't know when that might happen or how. The body might clear it all at once, or it might progress in stages. An uneven decrease in efficacy across body systems could cause life-threatening problems. I understand. A complete clear would mean Carloa's body would simply wake up and her organs would begin functioning at normal levels again simultaneously. But a gradual clear would mean some systems might wake up while others would still be artificially slowed or suspended. Any organ or system that reached a normal metabolic rate before heart and lungs ramped up to provide adequate blood and oxygen would be a disaster. Too much blood or oxygen to still sleeping organs could be equally catastrophic. Clearly, it would be best to develop a controlled process for revival, I say, thinking not only of Carloa, but also of the other 200 Bartizellians lying in stasis somewhere in a company holding area. Yes, Matcha agrees, we would like to work on that, but some of the materials are fairly exotic and the equipment for truly rigorous testing exceeds what we have here. So we're hoping the company will approve this as a formal project and provide support. Otherwise, it will be seat of the pants, but that really isn't unusual here, so we're ready to try that route as well. Even though Matcha thoroughly described Carlo's condition to me, I'm still not prepared for what I see when we step into the intensive care unit. It's as though Carloa has been turned into a finely made turquoise sculpture. Every inch of her is brightly, brilliantly blue, with darker blue veining visible along the insides of her arms, her neck, and chest. Her skin and hair glimmer like polished stone. The monitor drones hovering above her bed report pulse and respiration rates beyond human ability to perceive. I place my hand on her arm and feel a texture that is not stone but also not skin, something in between, cool but not entirely rigid. One of the drone monitors pings, and I see it's registering the heat of my hand on Carloa's arm. Macha scans her quickly and says, I think it's best if we not touch her, just to keep variation at a minimum. Of course. I remove my hand, guiltily aware that I reached for her, not out of concern or an urge to comfort, but out of curiosity. Do you think she knows we're here? I ask. Macha's forehead creases as she ponders the question. She's not completely unconscious, technically, so there's always that possibility, she says. We don't know what this drug does to perceptive abilities. Her brain, remember, has been metabolically slowed down, just like her pulse and her breathing. If she's aware of what's going on around her, we don't see any evidence of it in her vitals. But it may be that we don't know what to look for. I study Carloa, searching for... what? I'm not certain. At last, I simply say, I hope you're better soon, Carloa. I didn't get a chance to know you, and I think you might like Iona more than you imagined. The twins are doing well. Mabry and Quimby are doing well. You still have a place in our pod when you recover, if you want it. I leave clinical feeling even more trepidation than when I arrived. There's something about the whole situation that makes me uneasy. I cannot put my finger on it, and I finally put it down to a sense of general helplessness. I like to be of use, and there's nothing I can do for Carloa, or for the others in stasis whom I've never met and can only imagine. That evening, Graham appears at our pod for our walk, and I find myself visiting the star parlor for the second time. There are some obvious and logical reasons for abandoning our stroll to the comfort of this new space. Iona is entering its winter season, and although our temperate location affords us none of the dramatic evidence of seasonal change that we see on home world, it does result in exceptionally clear and chilly nights. But it's not just the comfort of the pillow piles and the warm wraps that make it so appealing. The guarantee of privacy, 
such a rare thing on Iona, makes it an even more enticing choice. Graham and I stack pillows to create a cozy nest and curl up together inside it, arms around each other and eyes turned to the stars above. He's brought brew and a real glass bottle instead of a metal flask, and the taste difference immediately signals something rarer and more finely made than Fanny's preferred libation. The liquor is sweet on my lips and feels silky and warm going down. Fanny asked about us today, I say, feeling the alcohol melting away all my reservations and concerns. Apparently all of Iona is anxious for us to become a couple. I feel rather than see Graham smile. I've taken my fair share of ribbing from Polly and some of the others, he says. I've just left them hanging. But if you want me to tell them definitively that we're not a couple, I will. I pause, uncertain how I feel about what he said. Do you want to tell them that we're not? I ask. He doesn't hesitate. I'd rather tell them that we're working on it. Oh, well then, you should tell them that. I sit up slightly, angled toward him, looking into his eyes. He reaches up and strokes my chin gently, carefully. He's prepared to let me lead, and whether it's the alcohol or the moment I had with Fanny earlier, I realize I'm tired of caution, tired of waiting, tired of being safe. Fanny won't get her whole story tonight, but she'll get the first paragraph. I bend my head and brush my lips across his. He pulls me tighter against him and we finally kiss, long, slow, deep. We spend hours in the star parlor, blending conversation and closeness, and when we emerge, I am even more energized and hopeful. The next morning comes early, and not without consequences. It takes an extra cup of coffee to bring me to consciousness after our very late night, and as I'm walking toward my day's assignment and maintenance, my headset crackles to life. Someone kept my maintenance team leader out past his bedtime last night, Polly roars in my ear, and I laugh. Graham and I did stay in the star parlor quite late, but only minors have curfews on Iona, and I know Polly is needling me out of affection. You might want to speak to whoever did that. She might be compromising a valuable company asset, I say. Polly is on the verge of making a sarcastic response, but his attention is suddenly directed elsewhere. I hear commotion in the background and Polly shouting instructions. I feel the cause of the consternation even before I hear it, the bone-crunching vibration that shakes the very air, immediately followed by a thunderclap shockwave and the scream of engines overhead. I look up in time to see the enormous white cylinder of a full-size lander blasting through Iona's gritty sky, then slowly rotating to 90-degree vertical that it prepares to set down on our pad. The company insignia is emblazoned on the lander's side. I know this wasn't on the manifest, so we're being caught somewhat unprepared, but we're resourceful. We'll make it work. Polly is shouting into my ear again. He's unintelligible over the din of the lander, but I don't need to hear him to know what he's saying. I shout, I'm coming, and break into a run. By the time I reach the pad, there are 20 people working frantically to complete the preparations for the lander's unloading, maintenance, and provisioning. We haven't had a full lander come in for months, so it's a bit seat of our pants, but no one is panicking, and the necessary jobs are getting done. Polly sees me come onto the pad and weighs me over. Get over to intake and see where we can put up the crew. Anywhere there's an overnight will be fine. On it, I say. How many? Polly checks his hola tablet. Five for overnight, one staying on permanently, he says. Looks like our new warehousing leaders finally arrived. Do we have any data on the permanent, I ask? Polly shakes his head. Not yet. Find us six overnights for now. I'll send our new whoop-de-doo over with this stat chip and you can sort out his assignment once everyone is on the ground. We'll deal with orientation and move-in procedures tomorrow after the flight crew is gone. Good enough. I turn and start jogging toward intake. The lander will have to go through a shutdown process that lasts about an hour before they can disembark. 
and they'll also need to see to whatever cargo is on board and complete the appropriate company forms and certifications regarding its delivery. Then they'll probably want to get some food. That means I have a couple of hours to pin down those arrangements. My brain is already working it through. I know I'll have to split them up as our former crew quarters were repurposed into residential pods when the Bartizellians arrived. It's going to take finding an open hammock here and an extra bunk there, and the accommodations might be cramped and less than ideal, but they're likely to be early-to-bed, early-to-rise types anyway, and for most of them it's just a single night. Most lander crews, like most Ionians, can put up with almost anything for one night. Once inside the intake building, I get the lights on and humming. I then go to my terminal, access our residential plan, and start looking for any open spaces. It's harder than I anticipated. The influx of Bartizellians left us eyeball to elbow as far as sleeping space. Only four pods are listed as having provisional capacity, but at least I can count them as four overnights. I send the affected pod leaders priority communications and hear back from them immediately. They'll make sure the members of the visiting flight crew are accommodated. I find a fifth space when I see a notation about an Ionian who is away on a field mission and not expected back for two days. Fingers crossed that's accurate. The last space is giving me fits until I remember my own pod. Carloa is still listed as a permanent resident, but she won't be leaving clinical while she's in stasis. I change her status to long-term relocation, and I have my sixth space. Excellent. I hear the main door open and footsteps echo across the empty room. I did it, Polly! I've got everyone sorted, I say. But instead of Polly's thunderous voice, I hear something else. A quieter, warmer timbre that is so, so familiar. A voice I used to hear every day. A voice that brought me the greatest pleasure and the most intense pain of my life. A voice I've only heard in my dreams for the past eight years. Oh my God, it can't be, he says, and I turn and stare at him. I know now I'm not imagining it. My stomach rises up into my throat. Faith, he says, his tone incredulous. My heart squeezes and I stop breathing for a moment, frozen, uncertain what to do. So many conflicting emotions, so many disrupted desires, so many memories, both beautiful and vile. It takes me a moment to get my wits about me. Arden, I finally say, even though my mouth is dry and I can barely get out the words. It's you. Thanks for listening to the podcast. We'll see you back next Thursday for a new episode of Read Write Geek.